Well, today, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Those of you who are new with us, uh, I mean to introduce myself a little late. Um, my name is Ben Smith. I'm the pastor of worship and discipleship here. Uh, pastor Steve is on vacation in the States. And so what we've been doing while he's been gone is moving uh, pretty quickly through the Gospel of Mark, focusing on major themes that Mark shares. We're doing a four-part series. Um, in the past two weeks, what we've done is we've looked at the person of Jesus Christ. The first week, we looked at Christ as the one who has authority over demons, as Christ is the one who has authority to forgive sins. Last week, we looked at Mark depicting that Christ is the great I am who walked among us. He is the compassionate God of the Exodus. And we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water to do that. This morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34 and 45. Here, Mark vividly describes the third and final prediction Jesus made about his death and resurrection. In Mark's gospel, he actually records three predictions that Jesus makes. And they form the foundation of the entire section of chapter 8, verse 31, to chapter 10, verse 52. And they signify a decisive shift in Mark's gospel. The first one in Mark 8, 31 through 38 shows this shift most clearly because it comes directly after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And so with these predictions, Mark moves our attention off of who Jesus is, Jesus' person, as the Son of God full of authority, as the great I am walking among us, to set our attention on Jesus' mission as the suffering servant. Each prediction, if you want to study them on your own, actually follow a pattern. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. The disciples fail to understand that, do something wrong, and Jesus teaches on discipleship. Each time, same pattern. The first one is in Mark 8, in verses 31 through 38. The second prediction is in Mark 9, in verses 30 through 37. And then the final prediction here, in verses 32 through 34 of chapter 10. And I want to look at the final prediction for three reasons. First, because Mark provides more details here than he does with the first two. When we began our study in Mark, you may remember that I highlighted the fact that Mark is a very vivid writer. He draws us in with details, sometimes details that we might think are unnecessary. But what we need to remember when we read Scripture is that nothing in Scripture is recorded without a purpose. So what that means is that God is using Mark's attention to detail to relay what we need to see in this gospel account. And he gives a lot of details in this prediction. The second reason I want to focus on this prediction is because it points very specifically to the purpose of the cross. 
And that leads us to the third reason. Church, the entire Bible, everything about our faith hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it did not happen, we do not have faith. The Old Testament reveals the sin of man. And it shows the necessity of a sacrificial atonement for sin. And it prophesies about that atonement coming through someone called the Messiah, the Christ. And then the New Testament opens up almost like a crash symbol. A gong goes off and says, Jesus is the Messiah. And his blood that was shed on the cross is the acceptable sacrifice for sins. And then the rest of the New Testament teaches us that only after trusting and what we call the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ can we see the commands of God and follow them joyfully. Everything hinges on us understanding the cross. And in church, the cross should never become comfortably familiar for us. It should never become something we mentioned in passing. It's the foundation of everything. Everything then is laid on top of the cross, like building blocks. Now before we begin to open up the scriptures, I want to recommend a book. Um, you can get it in a few different languages. I actually found out pork. Port- Portuguese. Portuguese. I fail to say that word every single time. But it's a book called Scandalous, The Cross and Resurrection of Jesus Christ by D.A. Carson. You can find it on Kindle. Um, I, don't, I think the bookstore down at UCC has it. And it's a great book for digging deeper about what took place on the cross. Because it was scandalous. And so with that said, I'm going to quote it a few times in this sermon to give you a taste of the book. And I would encourage you to read it if you want to dig a little deeper. Let's move to our text. Mark, chapter 10, starting in verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And spit on him. And flog him. And kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Would you pray together with me before we open this up? God, speak through your word this morning. Open our eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First, notice the scene that Mark provides. It's filled with vivid word pictures of emotion. 
we see that Jesus is walking ahead of everyone to Jerusalem. And everyone behind him is filled with complex emotions. The first emotion we see is amazement in verse 32. It says, and they were amazed. Now I want to remind us of the word used here in the original language, which we saw the first week. The Greek word means to astound or astonish or to stupefy. When someone is stupefied, they are completely shocked and unable to think or feel properly. If you remember, Mark used this exact word in chapter 127 when the people were amazed at Jesus' authoritative teaching in the synagogue that even the unclean spirits obeyed him. And he uses it again in Mark chapter 10, verses 24, when the disciples are amazed that Jesus has said it is difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom. He actually says it's harder for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom than a camel to be strained. Gosh, I, I lost that for a second. Let me get there. Hold on. It's more difficult for those to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Maybe there's some sowers here. So they're amazed. The teaching of Jesus is astonishing. There's nothing like it. But notice, notice the cause of the emotion here in verse 32. Why are they amazed this time? Because Jesus is walking ahead of them to Jerusalem. You see, they're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus is said he will be killed. Jerusalem is where the chief priests and the scribes are. And everyone knows that they're the ones who will deliver him over to be killed. In fact, in the parallel account of the first prediction found in Matthew 16, 21, Matthew tells us that from the time of that first prediction, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then Luke records what Jesus did this way. He says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. You see why they're amazed. He knows that he will suffer and he will die in Jerusalem, but he's leading the way there. It's astonishing. It's amazing. He set his face to Jerusalem, determined to go to the cross. Now, the second emotion we see is fear. See, they've heard the teachings of Christ. They've seen the miracles, and they're now following from a distance while he leads them to Jerusalem, and they're terrified. That's what this word means. If you studied Mark, Mark uses this word in chapter 4, verse 41, when the disciples are afraid after Jesus calms the winds in the boat. And in chapter 5, 15, when the city is afraid, because the city, the tomb dweller, is in his right mind after a legion of demons is cast out. Why are they afraid here, though? 
I believe this is because Jesus has said that those who follow him will lose family and will have persecutions. And he said that those who want to follow him need to pick up their cross. You see, Jesus has gotten completely rid of the notion that following God will always come with comfort and ease. And they're terrified of that truth. They want to follow him. But if I follow him to Jerusalem, will I be killed? Will I be crucified? Now we should note that Mark uses both of these words, amazed and afraid, in a way that signifies a continuous action. So the picture we have is them walking on this road to Jerusalem. And everyone behind Jesus is watching him, following him, amazed and afraid. Amazed and afraid. Amazed and afraid. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. Will we die? You see, these are progressively strong emotions about those that follow Christ. They're astonished because Jesus is determined to go to his death. So let me ask you, how do you respond when you picture Jesus Christ determined to go to the cross? Verse 32 then ends by directing our attention to this detailed prediction where Mark says, in taking the 12, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So we get a glimpse now into Jesus preparing the 12 disciples of the specifics and the certainty of what will happen to him in Jerusalem. And I think Mark draws our attention to this so that we will be astonished at the resolve of the Son of God to die. And so what I want to do is look closely at this prediction to see why this is so astonishing. And I want to point out three things that I see in this prediction. First, the death of Christ is absurd yet necessary. Verses 33 through 34. Jesus says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. What goes on through your mind when you read these words? Maybe you're amazed by the details and the clarity of the prediction. Rightfully so. Jesus provides every detail and aspect of his execution that's forthcoming. He tells the twelve that in Jerusalem he'll be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. If we keep reading, we see this happen in Mark 14, 41 through 43. He then says he'll be condemned to death and delivered over to the Gentiles. We see this happen in Mark 15, 1. Then Jesus says they will flog him 
mock him, spit on him, and kill him. And we know kill means crucifixion because he's pointed to the cross back in Mark chapter 8. We will see all this take place in Mark 15. Every detail, perfect clarity, fully predicted. Maybe you tear up when you read these words because you think about the depth of the suffering Christ went through. But the more I meditate on this, the more I think about it, the more I continue to just be astonished at how absurd the death of Christ was. Now, I want to be careful when I say that word because it was necessary. Absurd means something is wildly unreasonable, illogical, or inappropriate. This is absurd. Isn't it? Think about it. Look at the way verse 33 begins. Jesus says, the son of man will be delivered. Jesus calls himself the son of man. It's actually one of his favorite titles for himself. And it's a reference to a prophecy in Daniel 7, where Daniel says he sees someone coming in the clouds like the son of man. And this person is given dominion over everything, and all the nations serve him. So you see what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel and throughout the Old Testament will be delivered and betrayed. That's absurd. He should be paraded into the city of Jerusalem. He should be exalted. He should be seated on the throne over the chief priest and the scribes. They should be subject to his examination. But Jesus says he'll be delivered over for their examination. But it doesn't stop there. It gets even more absurd. Not only is the Son of Man delivered over to them, but we see at the end of verse 33 that they, the chief priests and the scribes, will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. You see, this is the whole religious leadership of Israel. The chief priests included the high priest and all the former high priests. It includes the captain of the temple and the priest that would be the director of the weekly service. These are the Levites, people set apart by God and told to make sacrifices and intercede for the people of Israel. And the scribes? Well, they're the pastors and the theologians. They're the teachers of the Old Testament. You see, they should have been anticipating the coming of the Messiah more than anyone else. And they should have seen the signs of Jesus and known that he was the Messiah. That he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Listen to this. Isaiah says that when God comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All those things happened. They should have known they should have seen that he was the Messiah. They should have rejoiced 
with unexplainable joy. But what do they do with their promised Messiah? They condemn him to death. And they deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we read this, do you not just think, what? This is absurd. But there's even more. It then says the Gentiles will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Church, Jesus, as we've seen, was patient and loving, full of compassion. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He made the blind see, the lame walk, and the mute hear. He amazed people constantly. This man will be mocked and spit on? This man will be flogged and crucified? Flogging and crucifixion were gruesome punishments reserved for the worst of rebels and criminals. I'm going to get a little detailed here. Flogging, if you don't know, was where they took a three-thonged whip and added shards of glass and bone and metal. And they would whip the person until they were on the brink of death. And then that person would have to carry their cross on their back shoulder, which we'll see next week, to their own crucifixion. All this would happen to this kind of man who was so wise and patient and compassionate and loving. It truly is absurd. But that's where the logical question comes to our minds. Why? Why does this happen to Jesus? Was it simply by chance? And the consistent answer from Scripture is it was not by chance. It was necessary. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that God determined that this would happen to Jesus. Why? Because sin had to be atoned for. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that only innocent blood atones for sin. From the fall of Adam and Eve, we learn that by means of sacrifice, God will cover the sinner's guilt. From the story of Cain and Abel, we learn that there is only one acceptable sacrifice to God. From Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac, we learn that God will provide the necessary offering. And then from the Passover, we learn that it would be the blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The Old Testament says over and over, a sacrifice is required for sin. And when John the Baptist comes on the scene in John 1.29, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yes, it was absurd. It is completely illogical that a man like Jesus would have died this kind of death. But it happened because it was necessary. And I always wonder, why then such a gruesome death? Why did it have to be so rough? Because sin is a serious offense to God. Your sin and my sin 
offend a holy and just God, and it demands a penalty. And the way Jesus died shows us just how serious our sin truly is. And it shows us just how amazing and astonishing it is that God would send his perfect son to take that payment. See, the death of Christ was absurd, yet necessary. And this leads us to my second point. The death of Christ is a mercifully gracious exchange. When answering why this had to happen, it's not sufficient to just say a sacrifice was needed to atone for sins. It doesn't fully answer the question. You see, we must understand what we are saved from. What exactly is being satisfied with the payment? And this final prediction provides us with that answer if we understand two parts of it at the end of verse 33. First, if you look there, Jesus says that after he's delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, they will condemn him to death. Now, in order to understand what is happening at the cross, we need to understand two things. The purpose of death and the nature of Jesus. We see the purpose of death first introduced at the beginning of creation in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here we see that death is associated with disobedience to God. And then Romans 6.23 reveals the purpose of death. Where it says, the wages of sin is death. The salary of sin is death. You see what that's saying? Is that which is duly owed... That which is rightly owed for sin is death. And that's when we get into the nature of Jesus Christ. You see, we see through scripture that Jesus Christ is both a sinless man and God in the flesh. He never sinned while on the earth. He obeyed his father perfectly. And there's also no sin in God. So sin is against the nature of God. And Jesus, as God in the flesh, it's against the nature of Jesus. Do you see what this all means? Death is the last thing that should ever happen to Jesus. There was no sin for death to be the wages for in him. And that's the first part that we need to understand about this exchange. The second part is at the end of verse 33, where he says they will be delivered over to the Gentiles. You see, there's a double meaning behind Jesus being delivered over to the Gentiles. The first is that he will, in fact, physically be delivered over to Pilate for a Gentile execution. But the hidden meaning is found in the Old Testament 
teaching of what it means to be delivered over to the Gentiles. You see, it's a theme in the Old Testament. And we can see this theme clearly in Psalm 106. And I would encourage you to read that on your own. It's a lengthy psalm which declares the sins and the rebellion of Israel. Then it declares God's kindling wrath and patience with them. God eventually punishing them in his wrath and then delivering them according to his steadfast love. You see, Psalm 106 is the story of the Old Testament in one psalm. If you want to know what the Old Testament is ultimately teaching, read, memorize, study that psalm. Now listen to what happens, though, when God's wrath was finally poured out when it was finally revealed, when it was finally executed. Psalm 106 verse 40 says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. So we see that God got angry with Israel because of their sin. And then listen to what 41 says is his wrath, his pouring out of that anger. He gave them into the hands of the nations. Or in other words, the Lord delivered them over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the nations. See, the theme in the Old Testament is that whenever God executes his wrath against Israel, it is seen as him delivering them over to the Gentiles. So Jesus is ultimately saying that he will be under the wrath of God. Why? Why does he deliver to the wrath of God? Because the wrath of God is the ultimate punishment for sin. And those who don't trust in Christ will be eternally under it. D.A. Carson in his book defines God's wrath in this way. God's wrath is the inevitable confrontation of God's holiness over and against our sin. See, that's what we see in Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20. Is that God's wrath is set against man's sin. And in that section of Romans, Paul is showing that all men, regardless of being Jew or Gentile, are declared guilty. All are unrighteous, he says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the state of all of humanity. Unrighteous and deserving of the wrath of God. Of the punishment of the anger of God. Let that sit in. Because what that means is at the cross... At the cross, the Son of God, the sinless Messiah, receives the payment and the punishment for my sin of death and God's wrath. That's what's taking place at the cross. The one who was sinless in the place of the ones who are sin-filled. You see, that is a mercifully gracious exchange. Our sin 
was laid on him. The wrath deserved for us was laid on him. And then Paul makes it even more astounding in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that, because, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, at the cross, our sin that was and will be committed and the payment owed for that sin and the wrath stored up against that sin was poured out onto Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is now poured out onto all of those who trust him. What a mercifully gracious exchange. D.A. Carson sums up what we see at the cross in his book this way. He says, do you want to see the greatest evidence of the love of God? Go to the cross. Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the justice of God? Go to the cross. It is where wrath and mercy meet. Holiness and peace kiss each other. The climax of redemptive history is the cross. See, church, the death of Christ is a mercifully gracious exchange. There's one more point we need to notice. It's an important one. That the resurrection validates Christ's work on the cross. It approves it. It declares it to be good. You see, we've seen that the death of Christ was necessary to pay for sin and to take the punishment of the wrath of God. And then after providing these details, Jesus makes a simple and important declaration in verse 34. After three days, he will rise. In the original language, it actually signifies that Jesus makes himself rise. And I think this is to show two purposes of the resurrection. The two primary purposes of the resurrection. First, to show that Jesus has the power over death to raise his own life. And therefore, he has the power to raise all who trust in him. But the second purpose of the resurrection is to show that his work on the cross is sufficient to atone for sin. You see, the resurrection is the declaration that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that it was. That the payment was made. That the wrath of God was satisfied. And that all who trust in him have hope. You see, the resurrection church is not just your evidence of hope and eternal life. Not just your evidence that you will be raised to eternal life. It is your evidence that the cross was enough. It is your evidence that what he said is true and that his blood covers all of your sin. You see what this is saying? You don't have to wonder whether Christ's work on the cross was sufficient for your sin, for that which you committed years ago, 
for that which you committed yesterday, for that that you will commit tomorrow probably. You don't have to wonder if you've been made right with God. If you trust in Christ and what he did on the cross and you're being sanctified by his spirit, you can rest fully assured that God is completely for you and that there is grace stored up for you because the resurrection validates the work of Christ on the cross. So this brings us to our conclusion. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. After the disciples fail to understand, and Jesus teaches them on true discipleship, he ends with these astonishing words. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment to buy back. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, the Word that existed from eternity past, the second person of the triune God, perfect unity, perfect love, perfect joy, came to this world to die. He came to die. The one who had authority over demons, the one who had authority to forgive sins, came to give his life as a payment for sins. The compassionate God of the Exodus that we saw last week, the great I Am who walked among us, came to give his life as a ransom for you and I. He was determined to go to the cross. He was resolved to die. Are you astonished by this when you think about it? Are you amazed? Are you left in awe? I think that's what it should do to us. I think we should be in awe that this happened. And that will change us. You see, the cross means everything. Everything. As we conclude, listen to how D.A. Carson sums up everything that the cross means for us. Everything that we know and appreciate and praise God for in all of the Christian experience, both in this life and in the life to come, springs from this bloody cross. Do we have the gift of the Spirit secured by Christ on the cross? Do we have the fellowship of the saints secured by Christ on the cross? Does he give us comfort in life and in death Secured by Christ on the cross? Does God watch over us faithfully? Secured by Christ on the cross? Do we have hope of a heaven to come? Secured by Christ on the cross? Do we anticipate resurrection bodies on the last day? Secured by Christ on the cross? Is there a new heaven and a new earth, the home where righteousness dwells? Secured. By Christ on the cross. Do we enjoy new identities? 
so that we no longer see ourselves as nothing but failures, but instead as deeply loved, blood-bought human beings redeemed by Christ and declared just by God himself. All of this church is secured by Christ on the cross and it's granted to those who have faith in him. What an amazing truth. What an astonishing reality. Christ gets punishment. We get joy. Do you see it? Look at these pages. Look at these few verses and see the astonishing resolve of the Son of God and believe, trust that he came and he died in order to give you life. Please stand with me and let me pray this over us this morning. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are so great. You are so awe-inspiring, so merciful, so loving, so just. And it is amazing to see what Christ did when he came to this world to redeem us. What he did to pay for our sin. What he did to give us his righteousness. What he did to secure joy everlasting. God, help us not to become unmoved by the cross. Help us not to move on too quickly by the cross of Jesus Christ. For that is where our hope is. Our hope is in nothing else but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name I pray.